Some of you may have wondered why there are a bunch of Kleenex boxes at the ends of many of the pews. I've not specifically planned a tearjerker of a message that I know of. Uh, I'm not sure if there's someone here who really wants people to blow their nose instead of using their hands, and maybe we could have a nose-blowing contest to begin our service. That would be interesting crowd participation. I really have no answer. I don't know why there's all these Kleenexes. Apparently there was a sale, and so avail yourself to them uh, uh, if you need them. Uh, as, as Ben has mentioned already, and you probably saw in the weekly update, and you saw on the front of the bulletin, we are beginning uh, an Easter series today, and yes, Easter is upon us again, and I was wondering what your initial perspective is on Easter. What's your initial thought that comes to your mind? And, and I would imagine for some of you, it's like, it's Easter already? Because it seems like we just got through Christmas. Uh, some of you automatically go to chocolate and the Easter bunny and all the treats that come along with uh, some of your traditions around Easter. Uh, maybe you think of family and the get-togethers that you will have. But I know that there are some of you and your thinking is, we are beginning another Easter series. Am I going to have to hear the same message, the same story over again? And I got to be honest, that's my initial perspective when I come into Easter. As one who often has the task of preaching through Easter, I realize that for many, Easter is a very familiar story. I was asking my brother, a couple of weeks ago, and he's been preaching Easter for over 40 years. I said, John, what are you preaching on this Easter? And he says, Brent, how many different ways can you preach Easter? And, and I, I really feel this year that what we need is a fresh look at the Easter story. Uh, to see Easter from a different angle that revolutionizes our appreciation for what took place, the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and what the implications of that event are for us. And fortunately, as Ben's already told us, there are eyewitnesses to the account. And we can see from their perspective or through their window into Easter and see what they saw. And some of these eyewitnesses that we are going to look at over the next few weeks, they're very familiar to us. Some of them aren't so familiar to us. But they all have something to say. And see, one of my fears is that over-familiarity jades us. It causes us to lose sight of the wonder of the mystery of God. And this has got to be about the last time of year that we lose sight of the wonder and the mystery of God. There's an old spiritual that asks the question, were you there? It's kind of a haunting question. Were you there? Each of these eyewitnesses that we are going to consider over the next couple of weeks, they were there. And I think it would be good for us to see what they saw, to, to feel what they felt so that we can learn what they learned. If you remember four or five years ago, um, I did a series at Christmas called Windows on Christmas. 
Uh, and using as a key resource was a book by Bill Crowder, uh, who's with Day of Discovery. Uh, and uh, I gave a lot of credit to him five years ago for that series, and I want to begin this series doing the same. Bill Crowder wrote another book, The Windows on Easter, and I've used that to kind of guide us through the different people we are going to look at. I've used it, excuse me, as a resource, and so I want to give credit uh, to him right up front for some of the things that he has guided me in, some of the direction he's given, and for the odd time that I just outright steal something that he said. So uh, if it was really profound, it was probably something that Bill Crowder had uh, in his book. But, but seriously, my prayer for all of us this Easter season, as we go through this series, is that we will feel the need to humbly bow before a bloody cross. That we will see the horrors and the cruelness of that cross. That we will understand the tragedy of the human condition that required that a Savior had to come in the first place. And that we would marvel at the glory of the victorious and risen Savior. Ben talked a little bit about looking through a window uh, as he introduced the uh, service this morning. And and it's true, when we look through a window, we see what's on the other side. And as we look through the windows of Easter from these different characters, we are going to see what they saw that first week of Easter. But there's something also true that when we look through a mirror, not only do you see what's on the other side, you also see your own reflection. And my other prayer for us this Easter, as we go through this series, is that we would realize that what happened and, and why it happened was because of the love that God the Father has for the person who's staring back at you through that window. The love that God has for you. And the window that we are going to look at today is the window of surprise. And I would imagine everybody loves surprises, especially the the wonderful, thrilling surprises. Like when you experience something or you receive something that you weren't expecting. And I can think of so many scenarios, and you know that I love Hallmark movies, and so you know that I would love the YouTube videos where you see people getting unexpected promotions or proposals or a son or a daughter who's in the army and comes back for a child's graduation. All those kind of scenarios, those unexpected, wonderful surprises, they throw me. I love them and I love watching them. But all surprises aren't wonderful and thrilling. There are surprises in life where we receive or something happens to us that's unexpected, that's heartbreaking and and terrifying. Allison just described briefly for you with little details a horrific surprise that took place on our street this week, losing one of our neighbors to a tree. But I can think of so many other scenarios. Getting called into your boss's office to find out that you're being let go. Coming home and finding a note note from your spouse that they have left. Going to a doctor for a regular routine checkup to find out that you've got a horrible disease. To receive a a phone call to, to hear horrific news. See, surprises, whether they're good or even, especially when they're bad, 
can knock us off our feet, can challenge our perspective, our worldview, our comfortable presuppositions on life. They can burn into our memory and they can change our life forever. The Bible's filled with surprises. I was thinking of uh, this, this week, for those of you who are doing the one-year Bible, what an interesting challenge that would be as you go through from Genesis to Revelation, just to keep a list of all the surprises, all the unexpected things that take place. I would imagine you would create quite an extensive list. We just came out of Christmas. It is a time of all sorts of surprises. I mean, just think, Jesus, the King, the Creator, Holiness personified comes down in poverty, reaching out to the lowest of lows, even, even to the worst of sinners. And the Easter story is equally filled with surprises and irony. And one of the most shocking, surprising events takes place the night before Jesus is put to death in the Garden of Gethsemane. And of all the people that found themselves surprised at what took place, topping the list must be the little-known man, Malachus, the servant of the high priest. What is it that was so surprising for Malachus? How did it impact his life? And how could it impact our life? Let's look through the window of surprise. Let's look through Malachus' window onto the events of Easter and see what he saw. And if you've got the uh, Bible open to Luke 22, uh, you can keep your finger in there because that's one of the key passages that we're going to be looking at this morning. But I must say the events that took place involving Malachus must have had a significant impact on the followers of Jesus. All four gospel writers record the events that include Malachus. Each one giving different details, giving us the full account of what took place. John, he actually names Peter as the swordsman. And he names Malachus as the slave. Luke He's the only one that tells us that Jesus, Jesus healed Malachus. He even told us that it was the right ear. But in the midst of all the chaos that was taking place, there in the garden, and if truth be told, the, the arrest, the betrayal of Jesus, that gets most of the attention. But it's very telling that all four gospel writers tell us about Malachus. And I'm sure Malachus' day started like any ordinary day for him. He was, uh, if you look at the Greek, he was considered to be the chief servant or the chief slave of Cyphus, the high priest. And I'm sure that day he began his day doing his usual routine of feeding the animals, maybe it was doing the laundry, going to the market, delegating tasks for the other slaves shining the chariot. I don't know what other things that he may have been doing. When his boss comes to him and says, Malachus, I need you to be ready. 
Tonight, I want you to go with some Roman soldiers and some temple police and some of us religious leaders. I want you to go with us and we are going to arrest that troublemaker, Jesus. And I'm sure Malachus jumped up and he was right ready to go because he was very obedient. And Cyphus said, no, no, hold on. We're not going yet. We're going to wait till it's pitch black. We're going to go under the cover of midnight. And so the day continues on. And as we've read, Jesus and his disciples have, have found themselves where they often would go, and Judas knew this. They went to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was going to pray, and he encouraged the, the disciples to pray as well. But I guess it had been a long day, and the disciples kept falling asleep. And Jesus wakes them. And he's talking to them. And as he's talking to them under the, the cover of midnight, they see these lights flickering in the distance coming across the Kidron Valley and up towards the Garden of Gethsemane and right up to where Jesus and the disciples were. And what happens next happens so quickly. A brief conversation, a, a quick kiss, the disciples asking, should we fight? And before Jesus could even answer, impulsive Peter pulls out his sword and goes running towards this group of men, wildly swinging and hits Malchus right in the side of the head. And it was very fortunate for Malchus that Peter was a fisherman uh, because Peter was aiming for his head. But he hit his ear. And Malchus is in severe pain. And grabs for the side of his head and he's feeling dizzy and he can feel the blood coming out from where the ear used to be. And he holds it, but he realizes it's no use. The head, the blood is covering his hand and it's going down his cheek and down his neck and onto his cloak. And then he hears the words. Stop! No more of this! And as Malchus was surely kneeling or laying on the ground he sees Jesus, the one he come to arrest, stoop down and look him in the eyes with, with such compassion and kindness and reaches for Malachi's right ear and puts it back in place. And all of a sudden, the pain was gone. There was no more bleeding. No more dizziness. He could hear out of his right ear. And with that, the soldiers arrested Jesus, the disciples fled, and Malchus is left standing there. I would imagine rubbing his right ear, having a newfound thrill of having it on his head, and scratching his head, wondering, who is this Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who is Malachus? You know, we don't know anything else about Malachus other than what we read in the four gospel accounts. And only one of them even mentions his name. All we know about Malachus is that he was literally the bond slave of the high priest. And we know that being a Hebrew slave was a tolerable life. But it definitely was not a life of freedom, of, of promise, or opportunity. But even just knowing that about Malachus, that he was the bond slave, a Hebrew slave to Cyphus, the high priest, opens the door for us into the irony 
of what was taking place. If you got your Bible open in Luke, turn back to Luke 4. This is one of Jesus' first sermons. And in Luke 4, we f- Jesus finds himself in the temple where he liked to go and he liked to read to those who would listen. Uh, and he's handed a scroll and in verse 16 of Luke 4. This is what Jesus has to say to the crowd. It says, He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Roll the clock ahead two or three years and see the irony in the event. Here's Malachus, a slave who knows no freedom. And he's come with a group of men to assist in the arrest and the eventual crucifixion of the one who had come to bring freedom. He was a slave and he had come to capture and to see killed the great emancipator of the slaves. Adding to the irony, Malchus' name actually means king or kingdom. And so here is Malchus, a servant whose name means king, who has come to capture and see arrested and killed the king of kings, who said he didn't come to serve, but rather he, to be served, but rather that he came to serve. Such irony in Malachus' participation in what was taking place. And he wasn't in it alone. As we read and if we put all the four gospel writers' accounts together, we realize that this could have been quite a huge group of men who had come to arrest Jesus. There was temple police, there was religious leaders, and then there's this word that was used, and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about it, but to describe the number of men that would have been Roman soldiers who had come along to assist in the arrest. And from what we can figure, the number of just of Roman soldiers, which could have included horsemen, amongst other things, fully armed, could have been as low as 200 men up to 2,000 men, or somewhere in between. There is a huge crowd that has been put together to capture Jesus and to make sure that this supposed troublemaker doesn't get away. You know, on my face, I wear a scar of an unexpected punch. Years and years ago, grade 8 automotive class, I was standing talking to a group of friends. All I can remember was by the big sink where we would wash our hands. And over here, there was another group of my friends. 
And Graham, you need to listen to this story because my friend Dave Stock was standing over here and he was shadow boxing with these other groups. So he was sitting there punching like this and pretending he was a boxer. I was standing over here having a conversation and I turned around and walked that way and I had braces and a retainer and elastics and all sorts of metal that was probably, probably worth millions now in my mouth. And he punched me and it poked one of the metal pieces right through my face. So I had this little thingy sticking out of my cheek. Totally unexpected. Caught me totally off guard. A very unexpected, unpleasant surprise. Thank you. You knew I was tough. (laughs) I can't imagine the surprise it must have been for Malachus. He come to arrest what he had thought was a small group of unarmed religious freaks. And all of a sudden, Peter the fisherman comes running at him with a sword and cuts his ear off. Can you imagine what Malachus must have been thinking? What's going to happen to me? Would anyone care? Like, Like, think about it. He was a slave. If the report had come back to the the Roman officials and and to Cyphus the high priest that we've arrested Jesus and the only casualty was a slave, they would have concluded that was a successful mission. Just a slave. Who cares about a slave? Just one slave, that's all? Fantastic. Good work, men. Would anyone care about a slave? What would happen to him? Would he just be left to bleed out? And while he's thinking that, all of a sudden, out of his good ear, his only ear, he hears stop no more. And Jesus kneels down and in compassion and kindness picks his ear up and puts it back in place. I can't imagine how confused Malachus must have been. First, a fisherman's attacked him. His ears been cut off. And then the very one he had come to assist in the arrest of has healed him. Why would someone that he had come intent on arresting and seen put to death, why would he choose to have compassion on me? Who is this Jesus? And I'm sure Malachus, he's heard the strategizing and the plotting and the conversations that had gone on with Cyphus and and other religious leaders as they met at the high priest's home. He's heard about Jesus and the trouble that he's causing. Maybe Malachus had concluded as well that Jesus was a threat to the Jewish nation. That he has to be gotten rid of. But then this happens. His ear may not be hurting anymore, but his head is spinning. Maybe Cyphus is wrong. Jesus is acting more like a high priest should than Cyphus does. And so Malachus is left in confusion. His head is spinning. 
What he needs is truth to bring clarity and context to what's just taken place. And truth he would get. Because as we look at all four gospel writers and their account of this event, we see that Jesus brings truth to the events as they are taking place. And with both ears now intact, Malachus is able to hear the truth that Jesus shares. And let's just look at four profound truths that Jesus shares with Malachus and the crowd that are there. The first thing, turn if you've got your Bible there to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, so this is Matthew's account of this event. Matthew 26, verses 52 through 54. Jesus says, put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call in my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? You know, I think of what was shared at the table this morning. First thing that Malachus heard was, heard was, what was taking place? It was the Father's plan. And I'm sure after all that Malachus had heard from the high priest and those who were involved in strategizing this arrest, Malachus must have thought that Cyphus was orchestrating what was taking place. But that's not what Jesus said. What was taking place was the fulfillment of, of God the Father's plans. This wasn't the high priest's plans being carried out, but going a little bit sideways. They weren't expecting Peter to have a sword. No, this was God's plan of salvation being unfolded. God had ordained that his son must die. What was happening was according to the Father's plan. You see, Jesus must die. Think about that for a second. Ponder that statement. Jesus must die. And if you understand that, then you understand why Jesus told his disciples to put their swords in their sheath. You understand why Jesus didn't resist. He realized that without his death, the whole world would be lost. This was the Father's plan. Being fulfilled exactly as he had planned it. And so Malachus heard that, and then he also heard that Jesus was okay with that. You can imagine Jesus looking out this 200 to 2,000 men who had come to arrest him. That was probably a pretty impressive group of men to come and get uh, Jesus and his disciples. But Jesus reminds them, you know, disciples, put your swords away. Are you forgetting the fact that just at the sound of my voice, my father would send more than 12 legions of angels. And a legion equals 6,000. So 12 times 6,000 equals 72,000. And it says more than 72,000. Jesus is saying, at the snap of a finger, I could have 72,000 plus fighting angels here to protect us, if I so chose. 
And what Jesus is saying, I'm going to be arrested. Not because God can't stop it. Not because I don't have the authority to ask my father to stop it. But I'm going to be arrested because I allow myself to be arrested. I'm headed to a cross, not because my father can't stop it. Not because I can't ask for it to be stopped. I'm going to a cross because I desire to be obedient to my father's plan. And if you don't understand that, you don't understand the cross. The cross is not a story of defeat. It is not evil conquering good. It's not even about God having quickly to come up with plan B because plan A has not gone as planned. Jesus came for the determined purpose of giving his life as a ransom for many. This was the Father's plan, and Jesus was okay with it. He would obey his Father's will. And then if you flip over to John 18, verse 11, actually it's short, I'll just read it. In John 18, 11, John tells us that Jesus commanded Peter to put your sword away, and he says, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And Jesus is reminding Peter and explaining to those that are there that the Father has a cup that Jesus is to drink from, and it's the cup of suffering embodied in the cross. And that's the direction in which Jesus is going. And nothing is going to thwart him or stop him or knock him off course. He must drink the cup that the Father has for him. And then the final thing that Malachus hears, and it's right in our passage in Luke. In verses 52 and 53 of Luke 22, then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him. Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour, when darkness reigns. How haunting it must have been for Malachus to realize he wasn't on the good guy's side. He had come helping out the high priest only to hear Jesus say, those of you who have come to arrest me, you are the, working for the power and, and in the hour of darkness. And with those haunting words, Jesus finishes talking. He's arrested. The disciples flee John and, and, and Jesus follow, sorry, John and Peter follow behind the soldiers who have arrested Jesus uh, from a distance. And Malachus, I'm not sure what happens to him. If he stands there for a moment contemplating what's going on or if he immediately followed the group 
uh, in the arrest of Jesus and, and, and reported back to Cyphus what had taken place and, and witnessed the, the crucifixion of Jesus. But we're left with all sorts of questions that we would love the answer to. What happens to Malchus? Does he choose to become a follower of Jesus? Does his encounter and his experience with the love and the compassion and the kindness of Jesus turn him into one of the greatest church planters the first century knew? A lot of commentators like to think that that's the case of Malachus. The only reason they can think this is because John names him. Now John's writing way about 50, 60 years after this has taken place. And so he can name Peter because Peter's already dead. He can't get in trouble for being the guy that was the swordsman. And Malachus, and it's funny, when you read John's account, he says that Peter cuts the ear off the, chief, the, the slave or the servant of the chief priest. And then in brackets, oh, by the way, his name is Malachus. And people want to think that John says that because the community of, of, of faith in John's day knew who Malachus was that he was actually part of that community. Hey, it was Malachus. Remember Malachus? Yeah, Malachus the evangelist, Malachus the church planner. That's the hope, but we don't know. Malachus may have encountered Jesus and walked away. So we're left with questions, but I also think we're left with some implications and applications for us. And I just want to close with with just two or three quick thoughts that I had as I came to the end of my my study on on this person named Malachus. And the first thought that I had was, this is definitely not the last miracle of Jesus that I would have imagined. Because this is the last bodily healing that Jesus, it's the last, other than the resurrection, I mean, that's some pretty huge miracle stuff there, but uh, the last miracle involving another person that we read of Jesus being involved in is healing this slave's ear. And that's not how I would have written the story. Like there would have been fireworks, uh, pyrotechnics, the temple probably would have been, you know, six feet off the ground and floating. The trees would be dancing. There would be thousands of people cheering Jesus on. And that's not what we find. Jesus heals a slave surrounded by people that don't like him. And what I see in that is the true nature of Jesus. Yes, he's about truth and he's about justice. But simultaneously, he's, he's about love and he's about mercy and he's about grace and he's about compassion and he's about kindness. And so this isn't the miracle that I imagine. And, and secondly, I and, and we may fi- find ourselves surprised at how Malachus experiences Jesus' love. He's just a slave. Who would care about a slave? Jesus would. Because there's no person too small, too insignificant, too far gone that Jesus isn't willing to reach out in love and compassion and mercy and grace. And we may find it surprising, but we should find it surprising that we experience Jesus' love too. Because the Bible tells us that Jesus reaches out to us offering 
grace and mercy and love and compassion despite who we are in and of ourselves. If we're willing to be truthful and honest about our true nature, we would agree with how Paul describes the situation. That God demonstrates his love in this, that while we were yet sinners, while we were enemies, while we were wicked and, and sinful, while we were hostile to God, while we were yet sinners, God sent Jesus to die for us. That's surprising. And that's wonderful. And the final thought is, how are you going to respond to this Jesus? Some look at Malachus as a wonderful, hoping that he's a wonderful example of someone who encountered Jesus and became a follower. Others look at Malachus and say potentially he's an example of one who encountered Jesus, who was even healed by Jesus, felt the physical touch of Jesus, and yet chose to walk away. How do you respond to this Jesus that we see in the Garden of Gethsemane who will die and who will rise again? And I know most of us here are saying, yeah, I, I'm a follower. But I hope it's more than just checking a box on a list. But rather, we would give our life to the one who's given his life for us. But maybe there's someone here this morning and you're hearing about this Jesus. You've heard about this Jesus. You've experienced the touch of Jesus in your life, but you continue to walk away, to turn away. My prayer is that today would be the day that you would turn to him and have a personal encounter with him. And that you would give your life to the one who has given his life for you. Think about those things as the praise team comes up and, and, and we sing this song. There's a real challenge and an invitation to come to the altar.